0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts,
1: Joe and Saul. Welcome to this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a very special guest in our studio. Today, Veronica, could you please introduce yourself?
2: I'm Veronica Drace. I am a clinical social worker for a hospice agency called Angels Grace Hospice.
1: Uh, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in um, Bolingbrook. I guess you could say I've been there for. I was there for 28 years and then recently moved. But um, born and raised same place. So. Luckily, I was able to find a job really only a mile away from my house.
1: What is your um, spiritual religious background?
2: I was baptized Lutheran, but I was raised Catholic. I, my whole entire family is Catholic. Um, my dad was Lutheran, so my brother and I were the only ones in our family that were Lutheran. I went to church a lot with my grandmother when we had the chance, and there's always been a strong faith background in our family, as we knew that there was a God, and we knew that there was someone up in heaven, and that's how we grew up.
1: So, what 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 was your dream, uh, young Veronica, as a child? What did you dream to be?
2: Young Veronica always wanted to help people. That was always always my ambition. When I was younger, I always helped people on the playground, and then when I started to grow up, I always wanted to help people with problems and just kind of swayed that way and just continued on with my adult life and everything, and here I am.
0: (laughs) You You know, I was a kid once too, believe it or not. I remember being in sixth grade, and in our sixth grade class, we had this very, for me, it was a very different experience the guy that sat next to me, his name was Bobby. And I, and I can tell you his last, I mean, he'll tell you his name. His name was Bobby Smith. You know, I, can, I can't remember half or even a, a fraction of all my other students, but Bobby was blind. Mm-hmm. And he had the the Braille machine and he was feeling everything with his fingers. And I mean, I'm watching him and I'm like in awe. You know, how does he do that? Mm-hmm. How does that happen? And, you know, I knew and it, and I, I know that my mom has told me recently how it was that I always enjoyed being with older people, so here I was with wanting to help him and learn about him and his well it was a disability in the, in the in the supposedly sight world, but I don't know if it was even a disability for him, but you know he needed help to go from room to room or from outside to inside, you know, and I would be one of those who kind of help him go walk him by the hand Uh And then my mom would always say that when I was a kid, I always liked to hang around with the old folks. And I'm thinking that that is, you know, all of these things that we do as young folks somehow manifest itself as we get older. And I, and, you know, I'm just wondering how that, you know, what is it that you saw? What is it you felt in the world when you were growing up that kept you going into this direction?
2: My family, I have a very, very strong family family. we're con- like we were constantly together and it was always a tradition where every sunday we went to my grandmother's house and my grandmother lives in chicago well she did live in chicago i should say and we just adored her we adored being around my other cousins and my aunts and my uncles and we just grew up in a family that were just constantly together seeing your elders such as you know my parents and my aunts and uncles take care of my grandparents the way that they did. That was a huge, huge role model effect in seeing that because, you know, that's all we knew is to take care of our elders and, Mm. you know, be there for them and whatever they needed, we got for them. You know, my grandmother couldn't drive. So each weekend we were able to at least, you know, drive her and, you know, to the supermarket and everything like that. So... the role model with my family has been significant in my life.
1: That is powerful uh, to see care being modeled and then wanting to do that. So what steps did you take to becoming who you are today?
2: I got my undergraduate degree at Lewis University and got my bachelor's in social work. Immediately after that, I went into an accelerated program at Aurora University and received my master's degree. And luckily, after that, I was able to... um, Find a job at actually at Angels Grace Hospice and have been there ever since. And got my license in social work and then continued on to get my clinical social work uh, license too. So,
0: how yeah. did you manage to get jump right into the hospice? What, what you know what, what actually, drew you? What drew you there?
2: It it drew me in the fact that well, to be honest with you, I needed an internship. In my master's degree, and I knew that I always wanted to help people. And I had an experience in my life when I was 13 years old, and I unfortunately had my dad pass away at that time. And we had hospice, and I fell in love with the idea. And it just kind of fell in my plate. Come when I was going in my master's program, and I took the opportunity, seized it, and to be honest, you never really looked back at anything else. So,
0: wow, you speak highly and very passionately about your family situation, how you, your family is important. Um, this is a tough question for me because uh, it brings back memories of me.
2: How did you deal with your dad's death?
1: Hmm.
2: My dad's death was hard. I, my, I, know. I I was 13 years old, and my brother also just turned 13, and then we had my mom. And it was just really the three of us. And we had my outside family, of course, and they were nothing but supportive. But um, you kind of learn to grow up quick in a chance of, you know, you don't really have a choice because you have to take care of, you know, your family and chores around the house that needed to be done. And so I really got my big girl pants on and started to do what I had to do and you know, be there for my mom, be there for myself, and be there for my brother. And being able to express any feelings that I had about my father's passing to my mom and being open about being vulnerable about losing my father at such a young age, that is what really was able to get me through and the support with my family
1: so, um, as a thirteen year old it's hard to process grief um but then you assumed a lot of responsibilities on top of your grief, did being busy and doing stuff to help help you cope somehow,
2: definitely, yeah, well, you know when you're thirteen, you know you kinda you're going in eighth grade, you're graduating eighth grade and and you're doing all, you know, sports and friends and all that kind of stuff. So you're at a really a prime age of trying to only not only deal with that on top of it, but identifying, you know, with yourself and identifying and the process of social interactions and so it it was, you know, a lot to take in at that time. But not, you know, it, it's it's you know, you take it in a lot any any time it happens. But you know, when you're at a preteen age, you know, like the rebellious stage and you're dealing with all that and, you know, it, it's, feel, you know, feel bad for my mom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, did your dad die? You said your dad was in hospice. Correct. Uh, how long was he in hospice? How long?
2: You know, two days.
0: Wow. He was uh, at the very end of life. Yeah.
2: And, you know, at, at that time, you know, this was 15 years ago, so there wasn't... know, he had esophageal cancer, so there wasn't really any kind of, you know, treatment besides, you know, chemo. And, you know, obviously now there's much advancements and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but back then there really wasn't. So when you had, you know, no other time but, you know, chemotherapy and radiation, then it was only a matter of two days and he passed.
1: Now you're working in hospice and you're dealing with death and dying all the time. Uh, what emotions do you go through when you go to a hospice patient with a 13-year-old daughter, just the age you are when your dad
2: died? 100% empathy. I get it completely. I I can understand what they're going through. And, you know, it changes too with gender. I mean, you know, it a female may, you know, a girl will be, different with you know with their father figure compared to, you know, a son having something with their father figure. I mean, it just really depends, but empathy is extremely important when it comes to something like that, just because, you know, you have to learn boundaries too. I mean, the boundaries of being in a professional field and you're in a professional area right now. And now you can cry, do whatever you want afterwards, but when you're in that setting, I mean, you have to be helpful and and empathize and be able to work with the child in a certain way because, you know, the other thing too is they may take it a different way and they may be angry. They may be, Mm -hmm. you know, sad. Um, All these different emotions come about. And so you have to kind of think what's going to be best for them, not for you.
0: We had a conversation with Dr. Spies, and in that conversation, he talked about little deaths, that we have little deaths all the time. Absolutely. And here you're talking to a 13-year-old. Put yourself in that position right now. Not as yourself, but as that 13-year-old whose father is dying of cancer. How do you empathize and deal with and counsel that 13-year-old as all these little deaths come along? All, All of a sudden, dad can't get out of bed anymore. Dad can't talk as much as he used to before. Dad sleeps all the time. Where's, the, uh, where's the, 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 how would you deal and help that person handle those griefs, those griefing, grief times? Mm.
1: I think uh, before you go, I think uh, <laughs> uh, there are multiple uh, losses, you know, that any families of hospice patients go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from the death of a loved one or the potential death of a loved one, there's also maybe a potential loss of income. If the parent who is dying, you know, is the breadwinner, uh, now there's a loss of income there that the family have to suffer. Um, There are also different uh, losses of Uh raw, You know, like you shared earlier from your experience, uh, people begin to pick up different responsibilities within the home, you know, Mm -hmm. doing different Mm -hmm. jobs uh, that the person who is dying cannot do anymore. So the family has to go through tremendous transitions, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, that can be uh, really, really challenging, and that's where hospice comes in.
2: And able to help because, you know, what we're really good for as social workers is identifying those coping mechanisms, Mm -hmm. identifying Mm -hmm. healthy coping mechanisms. Right, Mm -hmm. right. That's what they need. Yes. You know, how do we deal with grief. What, what do you do as a person or as, you know, this 13-year-old girl or, or boy, what do you do to help with, you know, vulnerable social situations? Do you, you know, go and listen to music? Do you do any exercise? Do you do any of these different things? Because those, you know, those endorphins are releasing out and able to kind of help cope with certain situations, talking about it. Therapy, you know, writing a letter, those things are absolutely wonderful. Talking to the person who's passing away. I mean, you're getting so much of that vulnerability from somebody. And the last thing to always go is hearing for when a person is dying. So, mm. in that case, when you're, you know, sitting there holding their hand and just being present with them and talking to them about, how you felt and how they've impacted your life. I mean, and or journaling, anything like that. Those are significant, significant healthy coping mechanisms that can help cope with something as dire and vulnerable as what someone goes through like that.
1: I think you said something special there, Joe. Sometimes uh, 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 clinicians or hospice experts do not even bother assessing for the coping mechanisms yeah. of families. And we make value judgments best on us. Uh, but uh, I think it's important, you know, for the hospice team to assess, I think, almost each family member what is their coping mechanism. Mm-hmm.
0: There was this one lady that I was with that had Lou Gehrig's disease. And, you know, she could talk until, of course, the time that near death came. And I would be able to sit and talk with her and chat with her and pray with her and joke Uh I did something so totally irresponsible that she, she got angry with me, and I had to apologize and apologize, and then she started laughing. <laughs> and these are people that have touched my life.
1: The gift of hospice. I think um, touching someone's humanity always helps us to touch our own uh,
2: humanity, and that's what hospice uh, reminds me all the time. Because you learn something, right? I mean, yeah. you're with different people. They teach you different things because they have gone through different things. And so they may react to something differently and open your mind to different possibilities of how mm-hmm. people grieve or how people react in certain situations. And I, I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah.
0: And, you're, and, and you don't know what your purpose is until you walk in the door. Mm-hmm. You don't have an agenda or you better not have an agenda no. in my book. And you if you walk do, at, then why are you there? Exactly. Exactly. You're going in there to learn. And to me, that is the 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 strongest uh point of what hospice is all about to give people that opportunity to express themselves in a in a because you might hear things that the family's never heard before. Mm-hmm. And that and that you is know, a and gift.
2: That's a, you know, perfect thing about different cultures. I mean mm. cultural sensitivity on certain things, you know. That different cultures may do certain things or do different things than you know what I consider is normal for my own family, yeah. and you know we have we respect that, and we you know we have to kind of put our morals and values or whatever we have and worry about what's best for them and their mm-hmm. families and their rituals mm-hmm. to make the best death possible.
0: Well, I had a similar story to that where I went to a, a family of a different ethnic background. And uh got into the house. I was on call, and it was on a it was on a Sunday, I remember right. And I got there in the late afternoon, early evening, and I'm walking around the house and and the uh, the person who died was a woman who was upstairs in the in the bed and I'm laying and she's up there and i so I, okay, and and all these all the family members are just walking around. And I'm like, didn't someone just die? isn't there? you know isn't there, aren't they supposed to be gathering together? And I get up there, and in the room, there's the woman in the bed who died, and then there was, I think, her sister who was on the, sitting in there, and she was very quietly composed, sitting there next to her, her sister. And I said, okay, so uh, can you tell me what time she died? And you can realize this is early evening. Oh, she died about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, what? what, you know, what oh, we had a son who's down in, in Dallas going to the bear game. Waiting for him to come back before they're going to release it to the funeral home. Mm. Needed all the family to watch. Heard that many times where family are coming, Mm -hmm. and they want the body to be there until they they
2: come. I I actually had a situation like that very similar. It was, I don't know, like a, a few years ago or something, and I was lucky enough to be present when the person passed away, and I was holding her hand when she passed and you know those calls are always the worst you know calling the family members and you know uh-huh. you don't want to lie to them by any means no and, you got to tell them the truth yes so i i, I call the son and i i expressed my condolences and i told him you know i i was there i was holding her hand she wasn't she didn't die alone and i think a lot of people feel comfort with that yes and mm-hmm. i think that's wonderful because you know a lot of people's fears are to die alone Mm -hmm. and no Mm -hmm. one wants to do that and I I get it completely you know there's so many emotions that you go through you know fear and you know anxiety or something that when you're in a situation like that and you're passing and then you know someone gradually touches your hand and Mm -hmm. knows that you're there and then it kind of goes peacefully Mm. so I called the son and I let him know and he said that he was in Texas and I said, okay. I go, well, I I I I will be here until the funeral home gets here. So um I will I'll be here till then. Well, I, I wanna be there. Mm. Okay, I will wait for you. So I waited for six hours for uh the son to come just so he could say goodbye to his mom before she went and got cremated or or whatever the case may be. But mm-hmm. just I think the honor of, of being with somebody when they pass and the amount i feel of from family members of that non-guiltiness that they have that mm. they didn't die alone mm. i think is also a relief for you know the grief after you know the bereavement part of after the person dies mm-hmm. mm. knowing that someone didn't you know die alone and you know what if someone does die alone maybe that's their choice but some people a lot of people feel comfort in knowing that their loved one didn't die alone
1: well, that would take a little break. If someone you know is suffering
0: from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness
2: Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org.
1: I'm Soley and You're listening to the Hospice Chaplains Show. Uh, before the break, we're continuing our conversation with Veronica. Uh, tell us, um, you've been working in hospice for a long time right now. Uh, if people ask you what do you love, most about hospice what would you say
2: It's a tough question and I think it's a tough question because there's so many different aspects of hospice and how it can you know be the best for for you but and what's my favorite part I think my favorite part is helping a family member or helping a patient have the best kind of death emotionally in in my in my field. So emotionally if they're able to have a good death, I think that that's the most important thing and my favorite thing to to look at cuz there's, you know, there's humanity. There's there's so many different aspects in someone's life and being able to have a good death such as, you know, finishing that unfinished business if there is any or or being able to I mean, do the like, most simplest things that we think are simple, such as making, the last time making a recipe or something along those lines. And those are like the most important parts for a good death for me, which would be my favorite part.
1: I like that. I remember uh, one time I, I had a patient many years ago who was dying, but one of his dreams was to go and watch the Chicago Blackhawks play. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I brought it to the hospice team, uh, we made it happen, and he was able to be taken there and watch the game and meet some of the stars. And to him, that was the ultimate completion. Mm-hmm. Well. After this, I'm ready to die.
2: I had a very very similar story with that over at a. This is when I first started in hospice in a the first year, and he was a diehard Cubs fan. Diehard Cubs fan. He just wanted to see the Cubs. Just wanted to see the Cubs. And we were able to get him to go see the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. And it was, I mean, just the amount of awe and the amount of emotion on this man's face that he was able to do one final thing Mm -hmm. before he passed away is just, you know, it brings tears to my eyes because it. it, we kind of think of it and we take that for granted, right? Because we can easily just, Order some tickets online and go to the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this man has never been able to go to see the Cubs mm-hmm. and we were able to make that happen and it's it's just so beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. It's so great.
0: I have a totally different story about someone who had to complete their 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 bucket list.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I uh, had met this gentleman, and uh, he was lived in one condo, and his daughter lived next door to him and one day, I went over to visit him and told him I visit, and he wasn't there. So the daughter was there, and she goes, "Yep, Dad had to go to the had to go to the bank today." Oh, really? Yeah, he said he's had to, had to move some monies from some IRAs or whatever they are, or you know whatever it was that he had to do and make some arrangements and all that. And I said, "Wow, what is why is that? What's that all about?" She says, "Well, you know, he he's always had to have things just perfectly right." And uh, comes home day or two later, he dies. And I'm thinking, aha, as soon as he got uh, all of his financial matters in order, mm-hmm. it was okay for him to die. And I thought, that's weird.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like goosebumps. You yeah. know what yeah. I mean? It's just, it's...
1: Aha. Uh-huh. I think sometimes we take unfinished business for granted, and yet it is so big, it's so oh, it's huge, huge, it's huge. Uh, that when a person feels there's a sense of unfinished business, Uh, uh, I think helping that person complete that uh, promotes to a good death. So that is is really powerful. And I think for anyone who is listening, you know, uh, explore the patient's unfinished business. And there are many ways you can explore that. Are there some things that you've left undone? Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Emotionally, spiritually? Absolutely.
0: Oh, absolutely. Financially? I had a woman with uh, end-stage Alzheimer's who just... Did not want to die. We all know those people. Mm-hmm. Just did not want to die. And she's laying there. And her two children were there. And I was talking to them. And they were saying, what's mom holding on to? What's going on here? Why isn't mom? And then, you know, I, I said, you tell me. You know, what's going on? Well, well, we do have our brother Bobby who hasn't been to see him, see her. I said, really, what's up with Bobby? And Bobby had some issues. And they were fearful of his reaction, seeing their mother, end of life, you know, wasting away, all of those things that we know happens. And I said, you know, that's up to you to make that decision. But you know what your mom would want. Uh, They brought Bobby by. Bobby was fine. Two and a half hours later, she dies.
2: Hmm. Joe, you make a really good point when you say, what would mom want? And I think a lot of the times when we're in situations like this, and, you know, especially if you're coming from you know, an outsider, we kind of look into and say, what would mom want? What would dad want? What would grandma do? You know, so on and so forth. And I think sometimes when we're in a family situation, some people tend to forget that Mm -hmm. because they want what's best, but it may not align or agree with what mom or dad or whomever wants. Exactly, Mm. We forget that.
0: Mm. Yeah, and sometimes it's the... uh, People are so much more interested in what they want done instead of what their loved one wants mm-hmm. done,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that's the that's the differentiation there. Because mm-hmm. uh, I know we've all run into the situation where we've been with families that, you know, you've got to do everything for mom. You got to do everything for mom, and mom's mom's already told you three or four times, "I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm, that's mm-hmm. it. Leave me alone." And mm-hmm. there's the family trying to put their their be- put their two
2: cents in. That's right. And, yeah. and I think that's not only you know your two cents, but I think that's. Uh, kind of a feeling of guilt Mm -hmm. or a feeling of some kind of way of let me do something. I need to do something. That's right. And, you know, maybe at the time sitting with them and just talking with them is doing something. And people maybe don't realize that that's something to them because they need to actually be hands on with doing something. Mm -hmm. So
0: I've got uh, need to ask you a question or I'll ask Saul and you too. Uh, but from your perspective, you've, you've, you're you this empathic, wonderful social worker, loving being with families, being in all that. How are you handling COVID,
2: though? COVID is tough. COVID, we hear this. COVID, we hear that. We constantly hear about COVID. I guess in a personal aspect, I'm dealing with it as much as everyone else is. I mean, it's one of those situations where I can't control I can't do anything about it. Therefore, I do what is recommended. I sit at home and I I do a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in a professional standpoint, I am I'm struggling with it because my heart just goes out to all these families that can't go see their loved ones. It breaks my heart. Because there's nothing that they can do about it either. And also, there's nothing I can say about it to make it better. You know, this is something that everyone in the world is dealing with. This isn't something where it's a situational kind of thing for each family. Everyone's going through it. And it's just so difficult to be able to express those feelings to to families and and their loved ones that they can't go see their loved ones. And it's been, you know, seven, eight months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we, not saying we take it for granted, but, you know, family members, they do like to go visit their families, you know, mm-hmm. and their loved ones, you know, mm-hmm. weekly, daily, whatever the case may be. And shutting that off completely and not being able to go see them when they're still alive is the i think the most excruciating part because you know it's the isolation right mm. you're not seeing anybody you're seeing people come in and out but you're seeing them with gowns masks shields gloves and you're seeing all this stuff go on and you know especially in a, a person who does have some cognitive abilities cognitive disabilities you know the amount of confusion you know i'm sure someone gets from that is just, you know, what is going on through their mind? What is going on through, you know, what are they thinking? What are they doing? How are, there's all these different kinds of questions that I'm sure people have, and it's just so difficult to be able to even have provide support mm-hmm. to the families when I myself can't get in there either, can't mm-hmm. get into facilities either, or be able to kind of Talk about this just because everyone else is going through it too. Mm. Do
0: you think that we are going to have a grief pandemic after this is done? Absolutely we are. How are we going to deal with that?
2: You know, I wish I knew. I think we're
0: gonna I think we're gonna be busy with some I think real we're grief going to be, issues. Yes.
2: I think we're gonna be very busy and we're gonna be very busy on, you know, I know I talked briefly about, you know, the guilt. But the guilt is going to be ex- extremely forthcoming in in this pandemic afterwards because you know even though we all know that we can't do anything about it or we can't go and and see people because whenever we go you know we you know people are you know monitored and and they have to stay six feet apart I mean they can't give their mom or dad a hug I mean a hug uh-huh. and uh-huh. that touch that physical touch is so important in, in mm. someone's life and you, know, you never know how much you need it until it actually happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So when, mm. you know, this this guilt, even though that we can't do anything about it, families and and loved ones and everything are going to feel this guilt come mm. over them that they weren't there
1: mm.
2: when they should have been.
1: i you know, I'm re- I just remembered about three months ago I found a daughter of a patient who was a uh, in a nursing home. And uh, she was saying, you know, I even, I feel guilty that I can't even see mom. Mm-hmm. And I even, even if I explain to mom over the phone that there's a pandemic, mm-hmm. mom has Alzheimer's. She doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And she keeps wondering why I don't come.
2: Yeah,
1: And uh, <laughs> just talking to her, uh, hearing that weight, uh, that burden in her heart, um, it is tough you know what mm-hmm. families of patients especially in the nursing home are going through and they're not able to see their loved ones in the last days of their lives mm-hmm.
2: yeah and it's always the what ifs what if this didn't happen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what if you know what if
0: well there might be something we can learn from this too and that is uh, by not just us hospice but us as a, as a as a as human as human beings is not to take it for granted
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, when we can't go and see, I mean, I am so fortunate that I get to go and see my mom, mm-hmm. who's in a facility that yeah. is now covid free uh, and that is you know i I don't know what I would have done if, without being able to, and and fortunately, mom lives on the first floor so I can go and see her in a window visit. uh These are things though that you know it's it is such a challenging situation, and hopefully we're learning. What it is that we have to do when we things are supposedly going to get better?
2: Yeah, and it's difficult to say now how that is going to project because and how that's going to look. And yeah. you know what? And we don't know. You know, professionals even higher than us don't know because this is really the first time something like this has happened mm. in our age. Mm-hmm. I should say in our age.
1: Uh, in our podcast interview with Doctor Jeff Spees. Um, spoke a lot about the physical but also psychosocial, uh, psychological suffering that most hospice patients go through. Uh, what therapeutic interventions have you found helpful you know, as you work with your patients? Because there's always tremendous pain in most cases. Yes, helping somebody complete an unfinished business is huge, uh, but... Uh, what other uh, ways can... Because when a person is dying, they're already beginning to also think about their own grief. Mm-hmm. They're grieving, first of all, for the family, if there is family that they're leaving behind. That's
2: they, perfect. Leaving, yeah. They're leaving family members behind. Yes. And that's that's huge for people because they they're not sure how to react. And it's always one of those things where a lot of the times you see where... You know, the patient knows what's going on with them. But the family is like, no, no, don't tell don't tell mom or dad that, mm. you know, they're going through this or anything like that. And they already know. They already know. Oh, it's they kind know of, what's going on. Oh, yes. they know what's going on. Absolutely. And it's, it's ironic. I wouldn't say comical, but ironic that when you talk to them separately, it's don't tell Jane and Cindy. And then, you know, then it comes don't tell mom. And, you know, you go back and forth with it and, you know, then you have to have an all-around, you know, family discussion and being able to talk to one another, you know, what does mom want? Hmm. You know, what does mom want as, you know, end of life for funeral arrangements? You know, what do they want in, you know, do they want to be in a nursing home? Do they want to die at home? You know, we have to kind of talk that out with them to kind of see what they want at, you know, their end of life. It's, you know, it's their Happy. life and they want to do what's best for them as best for themselves. And I think sharing that and having an open discussion with family members and, you know, pictures are great too. Being mm-hmm. able to look at those and say, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. and But how can we
0: do that nowadays when we don't have the opportunity to be around people? That's the thing that just mm-hmm. frustrates the pants off of me.
2: Sure, definitely.
0: Because... Those are such wonderful discussions and necessary, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and they're not being done. I mean, I don't know how, you know, I talk to people on the phone, and I just, you know, I I roll my eyes because what am I really doing? I know it's a voice. Uh, I mean, they don't know me from Adam. Uh,
2: The ones, the facilities I can go into, um, I've I've extremely found it helpful. And it just depends on the person but you know facetiming technology has increasingly been wonderful for us um but we do run into the the problem of if you have someone who does have alzheimers or dementia and you know they don't know how to <laughs> no, use the know. phone no. you know in the older generation you know <laughs> Skype and FaceTime, all this modern technology that needs that we use on a day to day basis. You know, families just can't call up and just say, Hey, mom, because they have to go through the facility. The facility has to go through mm-hmm. the person, make sure that they're there, dress, look nice, everything. And it's hard because that's just for one person. And you have, you know, mm. 30, 40 residents or something. And it's so hard because all. And that's the thing all these families want to do is just talk to their mom or dad or their loved one.
1: So what advice do you have um, to our listeners who are in the psychosocial department on how to meet the needs of the patients and families through this difficult time?
2: Well, I will not give advice as I am a social worker and I will guide people to the correct way in in meeting people where they're at meet people where they're at because we all go through different situations we all go through covid differently you know we're all dealing with it differently because we just all go through it differently and my guide to you is to meet people where they're at because that will benefit them in the long run. And if you're doing hospice and you're in the helping profession, that's what you should be doing is helping other people and not for yourself.
1: Thank you, Veronica. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: That was Veronica Dressy. Thank you for listening.
2: Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.